Hello, 90s footy fans. Welcome to episode 69 of the 90s Club Footy Podcast. This week, we talk with former Brisbane recruiter and current Sydney Swans list and recruitment manager, Kinnear Beetson. Kinnear, a former physical education teacher, has been involved in the VFL-AFL industry since the late 1980s when he coached with the Carlton under-19s. He then went on to be the Western Jets regional manager in the TAC Cup before moving to Brisbane to be a part of their AFL recruiting program in 1994. After 12 seasons and three premierships, his next move was to the Sydney Swans, where he remains today. In this episode, Kinnear talks about his start in recruiting, the early years working at the Bears, the amalgamation with Fitzroy, the pressures of having the number one draft pick, building lists that win premierships, the changes in drafting to the current day, and some of his favourite drafting moments. I hope you enjoy the 69th member of the 90s Club Footy Podcast, Kinnear Beetson. Kinnear Beetson, thank you for joining me on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Really looking forward to having you on, mate. Thanks, Trent. Good to be here. Now, for those that might not know your name, your involvement in the AFL slash VFL has been a long one, especially in recruiting and list management. You're currently the general manager of list and strategy at the Sydney Swans. It must be a position and a role that you've just had a great passion for for such a long time. Yeah, I have. I mean, originally I was a phys ed teacher, so I always had an interest in um, sport and and young athletes uh, sort of striving to get to the elite level, et cetera, and was lucky enough way back in 1988 coaching the Victorian schoolboys, the under-15s, with kids like, Cooter and um, uh, Jason McCartney, uh, Anthony Bannock, uh, Trent Hopgood, some of these sort of guys, Kent Butcher, an old Geelong boy. So, yeah, it does stretch back a fair way. Seen a lot of changes. So how did you get your start in the AFL level? I know you said you started in Carlton um, you know, during those 80s, but where was it, I guess, when it became a national competition where you got your start? Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I, as I said, I was a phys ed teacher teaching at Coburg High, uh, and I'd applied to coach the schoolboys and got that job. And in the same year, ran into a fellow called Ross Henshaw. You might remember Ross. He was a great player in North Melbourne's uh, dynasty, one of their defenders. And Ross was teaching phys ed at Strathmore High. And we were at a cricket carnival. And just out of the blue, he said, oh, what are you doing with your footy now? And I, at that stage, had just about had enough of um, playing. I was playing out at the Keeler Footy Club. Um, and I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, I'm actually looking for a phys edda stroke um, part-time coach, assistant coach for the Carlton under-19s. So I said, oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. So I did that for a couple of years, and that led to full-time work as the Victorian Metropolitan Development Manager. But then all the Metropolitan Zones got abolished, leading into a true national draft, uh, and I had a choice of either staying at Carlton or going on to something else. And I elected to go and run the Western Jets um, in the uh, what was in those days the TAC Cup. Um, and that was only a six-team comp in the early days. And then out of the blue, uh, Brisbane approached me at the end of 93 and the rest is history. I, 
I started at Brisbane in 94 and uh, worked there till the end of 205 and then started at Sydney the end of 206 and been there since. Mate, the early 90s would have been a really interesting time to join the Brisbane Bears. They hadn't endured a lot of on-field success. Can you sort of recall the direction you were seeking during those early years of your tenure to try and build the club up into what was later on a um, you know, a great football club that endured so much great success in those early 2000s? Yeah, well, I think the recruiting strategy and direction of where the, the club was going with their list uh, changed under the direction of Scott Clayton. Uh, Scotty at that time um, was the director of football and he'd seen that sort of trying to improve the list, the old Brisbane Bears via um, what would you call them, second tier players from other AFL clubs just wasn't the way to go. They weren't getting um, any further forward. They were sort of just missing the eight a little bit off that. Uh, And he and Andrew Ireland, who was the CEO at the time, um, came up with the philosophy that we've got to invest in the draft more heavily. So that was sort of the likes of Lepich and Lappin and those sort of boys. And then, of course, the merger occurred with Fitzroy and that sort of saw the introduction of Chrissy Johnson and some of these guys into the team. So I think it was more under the direction of Scott and Andrew that the club changed its philosophy and invested in talented youth. How long did you feel that you needed that to build the club up, you know, from the draft? Obviously, going to the draft, how many sort of drafts did you sort of think we needed to get before we started being, you know, a really competitive side that, um, you know, had some great kids playing but sort of mixed it nicely with those experienced players and that as well? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I don't think there's ever one sole um, individual factor that's responsible for the team gelling, um, if you like, and and the team maturing. Um, The recruitment of a guy like Mike Pike, who's a terrific player, and and Pike will admit, I mean, at Fitzroy and North Melbourne, he messed a few things up, but Pikey was recruited pretty much by Lee Matthews, Um, and Lee was of the opinion that he thought that Pikey could help the team because he was so versatile in how he and where he could play uh, that he'd take responsibility for him. And he was sort of like the last little piece of the puzzle, if you like, because the Fitzroy boys had merged in, Lepper, Lappin, Chris Scott, uh, Acker, these guys were no longer um, kids. They were men. But at the same time, then there was this um, introduction of another batch of really talented kids in the Simon Black, Lukey Power, this group. But to be honest, from my view of what happened at Brisbane, it was Lee's persona and aura and the ability for Lee to come in and really grab a group of, if you like, cocky, arrogant young players (laughs) and be able to convince them that this was this was the method and the style of play that had to occur to be successful. And because Lee's got this aura that I've, I've never seen it before in a footy club, and I've worked with a lot of good coaches, no one like Lee, um, and he was just the perfect appointment at the perfect time with a list that was ready for clear direction, black and white, no grey, this is what's required. If you can't do it, that's fine, but you'll go and play somewhere else. You won't be here because we can't win it unless you toe the line. 
Um, and it was pretty much like that, to be honest with you. 1997 was a really interesting year, I guess, Kinnear, because it was the first year of the newly amalgamated Brisbane Lions team, obviously Fitzroy and Brisbane joining. From your point of view, the end of 1996 would have been a really busy time for your department, um, taking into account, you know, trying to you know attract and, and get the best <coughs> players to, to fit the needs that the club needed to go forward, but also, too, trying to work out with what plays you were going to get from Fitzroy as well. Can you sort of talk to us about that time um, from your point of view in the department that you work in then? Yeah, well, it was, yeah, it was interesting because, again, I was working with Scotty and Andrew at the time, um, great footy people and, and very smart um, footy people. Um, we worked out who who we wanted to sort of get from that group. Um, off the top of my head, Johnny Bar- Barker, Chrissy Johnson, Scotty Bamford, um, Rossi Lyon came, but then Rossi's knee had some problems. But because the club was still reasonably well stocked with Ruckman, there was an ability to be able to trade Matthew Primus, and I think he was traded to Port from memory uh, for a draft pick. And, uh, look, don't ask me. <laughs> who that player was that came in from that. It was it was too long ago. But um yeah, it was a little bit working through that. And, and Fitzroy at that stage, yeah, I, I felt for the the players, they'd gone through hell. Um and they were like gypsies really, um, with no one really steering the ship at all. Um and it was hard to sort of assess a lot of them. So it would have been a busy, busy time because I guess you're trying to think about, you know, the best underage players of what you're going to get. Um, you know, what you want to get in the draft, but then obviously too, you know, not getting too many of the same position or whatever to with, with the boys from Fitzroy. So trying to get that balancing act would have been something that you guys would have been having a lot of discussions about too. Yeah, and then and then getting the group to merge together and to gel as a group. I mean, that's always uh, a critical part of developing a list of trying to get guys that are going to buy into the team. Um, I think we did that reasonably successfully but again I'll go back to I reckon Lee was the critical part of it that just came in and was able to give them this clear direction and focus of what was required to win AFL footy consistently but more importantly what was required to win finals which was just this uncompromising tough brand of footy they they were a super team Brisbane make no mistake about that that was great team it's funny, we've got um, obviously the alliance with the Hampton League, so obviously the great Jonathan Brown coming from there, and we've we've spoken to Brownie about a number of times, and he just, how he paints the picture of Lee Matthews is exactly what you're talking about. You know, he had his clear direction, very strong focus, wanted success, and it's just exactly what you're saying is what, you know, I've spoken to Brownie about before. It's, um yeah, he's an amazing person, Lee Matthews. Yeah, it's funny how at times just little things occur at critical moments, but in the bigger picture, that they're just so crucial. The players had this full-day event at a major sponsor's uh, auditorium just out of Brisbane. Brand new spanking place this was, and the boys had been through a whole lot of lectures on conditioning and hydration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they had a a lunch break. I, I remember this as clear as day. And... They'd finished their lunch and they were a bit bored. They were ready to get on with it. And they had one of those cardboard cylinders. Yeah. And I think it was Timmy Notting had brought one of those rubber balls that 
they use for dogs that are sort of an irregular shape and you throw them and they bounce around all over. Well, the boy started playing cricket with it and Chris Scott was batting. He had the, I remember this like it was yesterday. And um, someone threw Chris the ball and he just flicked it off his legs, beautiful mid-wicket drive, if you like, and this <laughs> ball's ricocheted around the room at the precise second that Lee's walked into the auditorium. Lee's just looked at Scotty and said, Scotty, would you do that in your mother's lounge room? And Scotty being Scotty, uh, being, I wouldn't call arrogant, but he's certainly um, confident, Chris, said yes, but then looked at Lee and twigged straight away and said, but that's not the point, is it? And Lee said, no, it's not. It's about respect. And then Lee went on to this sort of 15, 30-minute lecture about respect within a football club, you know, respecting your, your teammates, your staff, uh, your major sponsors, the boot starter, the door, all this stuff about respect. But it was like there was this critical moment when the young bull had run into the, 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 the old bull, if you like, and, and there wasn't just Chris Scott, there was Leper and Acker and all these guys that were confident type of young young blokes. But the old bull made his stance and got his point across and it was like the others just went, ah, okay, we better toe the line here and away we go. Now, that, that might be oversimplifying it, <laughs> but I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday and thinking to myself, geez, this is a pretty important moment to this because he's just pulled them all into line about what's required to be successful. And I guess that sets up culture, doesn't it? And that's a that's a word that all footy clubs want to have good culture. That sets up culture yeah. with what he does there. Yeah. I mean, the culture, I think, is a word that's bandied around a lot and um, oversimplified a lot because in the end it is about just respect um, and good good behavioural patterns within the football club and how you go about your training and your rehab and your general um, way you live your life as a football as a footballer and and the club itself. In 1998, Kinnear, you had the first selection in the national draft. You selected Des Headland, an exceptional junior talent who became a, a great player and a premiership player and the like. How much pressure do you feel as a recruiting department to get that selection right? Yeah, it's a really good question, Trent, because the earlier your draft picks are, the more options you've got. And and you spend more time stressing about the difference between one, two, and three. And I remember that year because the other player we had in mind was Justin Longmuir. Um, but Desi was playing significantly good football at senior level for Subiaco at the time, as well as in the under-18 nationals. Um but yeah, it's not an easy choice at all when you, you you've got to split between a couple of really good players. Not easy at all. Who has the final say in who they sort of want? Is it you being the one that's done all the scouting, obviously having that list management uh, responsibility as well, or does the coach, you know, whether it was back then or now, still have a fair say on the type of player they want drafted in? The coach, I think, is more involved in uh, the recruitment of players through free agency, not that free agency was available then, but more picking out of the um, the eyes out of, say, the Fitzroy list and decisions like, are we going to bring Martin Pike in? Yep. And when you've got the coach saying, I'll take responsibility for this, 
and I'll look after the bloke because I reckon he's going to be able to help us. Um, they have a lot of the say in terms of trades. In terms of the national draft, our approach has always been, whether it was at Brisbane or Sydney, it's full disclosure to the coaches. Uh, what's and all about the players? So when they arrive at the club, the transition into the football club is pretty seamless and you you avoid the situ- situation of coaches going, what do we dr- draft this kid for? Like he can't do this, he can't do that. That's already been discussed about the strength and weaknesses. So then it's it's a bit of a balance between what the list needs and just the available raw talent and how good it is and can you afford to bypass that type of player. That's where it gets really difficult sometimes. <laughs> if you've got another really good mid, but then there's um, some key position players. I remember because when Lee was there, Gubby Allen was the uh, GM of football um, and it might have been the Headland Longmuir discussion and I think that was a bit later on Gubby said well who's the better player and I said will you tell me what tastes best an orange or an apple they're both fruit but they taste completely different it's not as simple as just he's a better player because quite often key position players and ruckman etc take a bit more time that's yeah. just the nature yeah as we know and the names that you spoke about before Scott Power uh, nodding these sort of guys um, they were all a part of that, you know, that dominant early 2000s premiership teams. Looking back now, how much satisfaction do you have knowing that you contributed in a major way in building that list that won those three consecutive flags? Oh, massively. I mean, that's that's what we're all in it for, to try to um, help build a list uh, and a club that's good enough to, one, reach finals, compete in the finals and ultimately win the flag. Um, it's devastating when you get to the last hurdle and you fall. Um, last year was a really cr- crushing blow. We went into that game against Geelong pretty confident. Our, our record against them was strong uh, and we they just annihilated us on the day. For whatever reasons, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe the boys were uh, overawed on the day. Um, but Ge- Geelong just looked absolutely primed for that game, I thought, in reflection. But yeah, a, a, a massive, massive pride. Um, one of the things when you're in recruiting is seeing a young guy that you've taken a bit of a punt on come through and develop and turn into a premiership player. And it's not always like the the Simon Blacks and those sort of guys. It's more the Bo McDonalds and the Aaron Shaddocks and these guys that end up playing role players for you, but you've taken a punt with them later on the draft. You know, the, the Daniel Bradshaws who was taken, didn't even play TAC Cup. He was playing for Wodonga. Um, and I think we drafted him in the late 60s or something like that. And, you know, he ended up kicking 500 goals or thereabouts and um, a strong part of a couple of the flags. That was my next question, mate. I was going to ask you, was there one or two that just came from nowhere, I guess, and adapted to the level really well and not being a top 10 draft pick or top 20 draft pick that came on and, you know, you you have a real sense of pride to see as a premiership player, and you've obviously named a few there. Is there any others that sort of really stood out, or is there one standout that stands out more than any? The the one I really feel for at Sydney is Alex Johnson. I see Alex quite regularly because he still comes to our games, and 
will come and watch the reserves, etc. And, I mean, he played centre-half back in the Premiership in 2012 um, as a 20-year-old and wasn't far off winning the Norm Smith medal that year, if you mm. remember. And yeah. I just think, my God, what could it, what type of career could have he had had it not been crueled by that bloody knee? Um, so, yeah, that, that's the downside of it. But at the same time, he's a premiership player. You know, Lukey Parker, I think we drafted in the late 30s or 40s in that draft and clearly remember sitting at the draft and just turning around to Rusey and John and say, I don't know what's happened here, but this kid's just too good to go past. I know we haven't discussed him in great detail, but the kid can play. We should just take him now. Um, I'm not sure where he'll end up playing, but he's a bloody good player. <laughs> and that's the way it's panned out. You know, Lukey's going to be 250-plus game player, multiple club uh, BNF winner, All-Australian and um, co-captain of the club. And at the moment, I mean, the ones you're ta- taking pride is in just seeing the chatty Warners come through and thinking, yep. just saw glimpses of him at East Fremantle and in the championships and a bit of that cheeky smile that he's got. Um, but to see him developing into a really accomplished AFL player is um, quite pleasing, yeah. How much has the role changed of being, you know, a head recruiter from the 90s to the current day? And obviously your role's experienced with <coughs> Sydney Swans and so forth with, you know, the list management and so forth as well. But from an outsider looking in, it would have changed a heap, I would have thought. Ah, uh, stacks, Trent. Stacks, like um, I mentioned before, back in the late 80s, early 90s, Carlton used to run their own, like if you call them um, draft combines, uh, where we'd bring kids in from various regions and put them through a batter of testing. And then a couple of other clubs started doing it as well. Um, so the AFL said, no, we can't have this. We can't have, you know, 18-year-old kids doing year 12, um, potentially completing the same test 10 times in the space of a month. And rightly so, they you know they've got their exams etc to focus on. So that changed the, the testing that's done at the combines changed a lot um, from things like the beep test gone. Now we've got the yo-yo test. They don't do the repeat sprint anymore. Um, the psychological profiling that they do has changed quite significantly. Um, we leave that up to the expert, our, our psych. Susie will look after that. I don't you know, dare try to um, interpret what those things are saying. You've got to leave that to the experts. The same with the medical reports. Leave that to your doctor and your physio to, to churn through that and work out how bad the injury is and just hope we don't stuff it up like Joel, Joel Selwood when, oh, he'll never play with his leg. Yeah, that was a good call by a lot of clubs, wasn't it? <laughs> Is there any other ones like that that you sort of look back now and go, geez, you know, we should have taken him? And I know hindsight's a wonderful thing in here, but is there one like another Joel, <laughs> one where you might have had a pick and, you know, you sort of thought, oh, this kid, he's, he's got the ability, but, you know, maybe his injuries and so forth, he's occurred, just he might not make it. Is there any other ones that sort of stand out during your time, whether it's 90s or the, or the current day? Not off the top of my head, but it's more the ones that you look back on and that didn't work. And you reflect and say, what did I get wrong there? And usually it's one or two things. Either they were really stiff and they got a bad injury like, um, say, Sammy Naismith or um, Alex Johnson. The one that's that's really frustrating is when they've got all the talent in the world and they just don't have the work ethic to do it. 
and they just keep getting caught out trying to take shortcuts and uh, um, I mean, I won't mention names, but when certain players have been coached by Lee Matthews and Kevin Sheedy and still can't get the best out of themselves, you're saying, well, something's missing here. Mm. Um, and that's frustrating when you see that, but um, you just got to move on. Got to move on. You can't be sitting there worrying about it. What's the hardest part of recruiting and list building? Um at the moment, I would think the hardest part of it's getting the balance of the list right um, and the opportunities to improve your list with 18 clubs. That's a lot different than what it was when I started. So the talent pools is spread more thinly. And it's going to get worse, mate, too, because obviously Tasmania coming in as well in 2020. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll wait and see what they do. I I heard Chris Scott the other day talk about maybe list sizes have to be cut back to cater for that. Um, That could happen, but then you've got complications with where your reserve's playing and how you're topping up those teams, et cetera, because the ability to do that from state to state in national competition isn't as easy as what it is for, say, a Geelong. Um, because they've got some pretty handy country football leagues around them to call players on. That's not the case in metropolitan Sydney. Yeah. And uh, of the domestic leagues nowhere near as good as, say, the Colac League and those things. Um, other things that have changed a bit is clubs have really caught on to trading for players. Um, Sydney, I think, were ahead of the curve with that um, for a long time um, with Williams and... Um, Strawball and some of these guys, um, but clubs now, that's everybody's across that and and trying to even set themselves up two years in advance with free agency and trying to prize players out. So those sort of things have, have changed um, and, and makes it difficult to get access to top-end talent. Um, and then the other thing that changed a lot, I think, was when Gold Coast came in, just the amount of money uh, and the proportion of your your salary cap that young players going into their second contract will demand pretty much from the fear factor of going home. So, you know, young players in their third year suddenly demanding four, you know, contracts starting with a four, 400 plus. <laughs> that, and if you don't pay it, they'll go. Um and that that made it really hard, and I think all clubs are a challenged by that because a lot of the time you'll you'll open up discussions with a player manager about extending a contract, and you put some figures to them, and they pretty much re- reply with uh, that's an underwhelming offer. You can almost predict, it and you're like, my god, <laughs> like, the kids played twenty games. The opposition don't even know who he is yet. I <laughs> think like, haven't put a lot of focus on him yet, or, or drilled into how to sort of curtail his influence on a game. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, all those things. Clubs have improved their professionalism a, a lot, I think, uh, in terms of their list builds. Mate, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick ones just to finish off. And I've really enjoyed the chat, Kinnear. It's uh, you, you're a great football person. It's been great to to have a chat with you. Do you prefer the old format of the draft, reading the numbers out? You know, um, player six five two three four Western Jets, Kinnear Beatson, or is it much easier? And do you prefer the uh, just the clicking of the computer now on draft night? Oh, that's just so much different, Trent. I mean, it was fun when you used to sit there and call the name off and you'd have your list and you'd just be crossing them off. But 
But now you're sitting there and you're waiting for the phone to go. You've got about three or four different scenarios in front of you about what if this club rings? Would we accept a deal to push back, slide back, do all these things? Are we going to bid for this player, father and son? We were pretty active in that space last year, as you recall, with our first pick. Yeah. We bid for two players. And we only bid it because we wanted the player. And we would have been more than happy if GWS or Adelaide had passed and we got those players. But there's a lot going on. It's a, The draft night now is a, a pretty stressful place to be because you're not only talking about the immediate draft, you're talking about future drafts. Yeah. And it's very easy to get caught up in the moment and, oh, how exciting would this be? Yeah, let's just give up our future second. And most clubs, we haven't really looked in detail into the next year's draft, yep. you know the better names. It might be about 15 names that you really know, but you haven't drilled into them like you do drill, like you've drilled into the current draft pool, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Sitting there and you've only got like three minutes or whatever it is, like do we really want to give up our second round for this? And But then you've got the pressure for coming from, you know, whether it be the GM of footy or the coach and, oh, you know, we, we need this player and it's it's pretty stressful at the time. Oh, mate, I'd, I'd hate to be in your shoes on that night, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, the draft's interesting because I just wish we'd promote it more. Like, it, it frustrates the hell out of me. Like, uh, I reckon the broadcast itself is pretty ordinary. Uh, and there's not enough detail on the young players themselves. Yep. But we're, we're ages away from what America do with their drafts with um, the basketball and, and the football. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there's plenty of growth for that. But, you know, there are podcasts and groups now, um, Rookie Me and that, that are working hard in that space to try to improve it. Um, yeah. There'll be one name this year that everybody will know before the draft, and they already know him, Harley Reid, but the others, they wouldn't know who they are yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully there's a couple of boys from South Warrnambool I know in our area that uh, are doing some nice things in the the Coates Higher Cup, which is obviously the former TAC Cup, so hopefully we'll see a name like George Stevens or Lawan Lawal maybe called out by maybe the Swans or, you know, someone in that space. I know you guys (laughs) have seen those and heard those names. Well, he actually barracks for the Swans. Yeah, yeah. We've well, got him, got him some gear, but he's also NGA to the Bulldogs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. So, uh, know him, in nice, nice young guy, mate. The last one I want to ask you: What's the most unusual question you've had to ask to build a player's profile during the draft combine? Do you have to, uh, you know, obviously you spoke about the Sykes getting involved, but no doubt you would have asked a question or two over your journey. Just you know, something maybe a little unusual. Sometimes at the draft combine, when we're sitting there and the kids had, say, five to six, maybe more interviews in the one day, and they come in, you can just tell the kids cooked, absolutely cooked. Like, yeah, I remember this with young Toddy Marshall um, because he was living in sort of central New South Wales and the travel he had to do during the NAB League final series that year was just ridiculous. I think he had three or four weeks in a row where he had to be at Princess Park by like 11 o'clock in the morning. So he's getting up at like four o'clock to travel. It's more sometimes I'll ask some stupid random question like, uh, what's the stupidest thing you've ever done in your life? Just to try to break it up from them because they're they're sort of sick of the routine of the questions. And we had one young guy, I remember 
that I didn't predict the answer at all. I said, what's the, what's the craziest thing that you've ever done in your life? And he said, oh, he said, it'd be probably chasing the emus on the old man in the old man's shoot and running him into the fence. So it's sort of those things. Um, But there are specific moments where you do remember I got caught in a lift one day in Adelaide and I was coming back down to the ground floor and just by coincidence I said to the mother, so how tall's Joe Trent's father? And she said, oh, he's about six foot three, but, you know, why do you ask? And I said, oh, I'm just trying to predict, you know, how much future growth there might be there for Trent. And she said, oh, it's probably not that relevant. I said, oh, okay. I said, why is that? And she said, oh, well, Trent's adopted. <laughs> and you're just like <laughs> oh, crashing no. ground floor, ground floor, <laughs> get me out of this lift. So sometimes there's things like that that come up and you're like, oh, okay, quick, let's end this one. Yeah. <laughs> But that doesn't happen very too often. Yeah. Hey, Kinnear, it's been a great pleasure to have you on, mate. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with us on the 90s Club Footy Podcast and reminisce about your time at uh, the Brisbane Bears slash Lions and the Sydney Swans. Good on you, Trent. Really appreciate it, mate. Good luck with it. You're doing a great job. That's the end of episode number 69. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and Amazon Music. We're on all the social media platforms, so drop us a line on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on any particular episode you've enjoyed or a guest you would love to hear. Next week, our guest is former Melbourne, Carlton, and Port Adelaide small forward, Brent Heaver. It's tough, it's rugged, it's good, solid AFL football. 